welcome to our first and only virtual lecture of the fourth semester. Now I know what we're thinking, yes I am more dressed up for a lecture in my basement than Alejandro was for a lecture in the actual classroom, but for me I need to dress up, gives me that lecture energy, makes it feel more real. So here we are, now I am really excited for this, now I know I am traveling right now, I am in Chicago, but I asked you an open, ask me anything question in our last lecture to see if there were any questions about forensic psychology, about the field, about the course, about the topics that had gone unanswered or that you really wanted to just pose to me. And so what I'm going to do in this video, or, or if you're listening to it auditarily via the Spotify channel, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to answer some of these broad questions that I've been given. Now I actually had a lot more questions than I was expecting. I had about 30 questions in the chat here on all forms of topics. So I have grouped them into a few core topics, a few core areas that I will talk about broadly. And then at the end of that, what I'll be doing is I'll just jump to a kind of a rapid fire, working my way through some of the more detailed questions, which range from Travis Scott, being a uh, being involved with MK Ultra, love that question. Uh, to commenting on specific cases, to questions about uh, what what the final may entail. Now the main chunks of this lecture, what the main bulks of the questions actually focused on. I think it was really interesting to see what the questions you had were. Was there was a huge bunch of questions on careers in psychology, getting into the field. A huge bunch of questions about how I deal, or we, I guess, as forensic psychologists, deal with the, 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 the content and the nature of the material that we're dealing with. And these are conversations I have, you know, every day with peers of mine. And finally, this really interesting question about ethically, what are the ethical boundaries and the ethical issues that forensic psychologists uh, come up against most often. So those are the three broad topics I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover. And then I'm gonna go into the rapid fire bit of everything questions afterwards. So if any of those three interest you, check in the link description down below and there'll be a timestamp you can jump straight to it. If not, let's get straight into the questions. So the first question that came through, I guess the first group of questions, is about this idea of careers in forensic psychology. And what do those careers look like? Now, there's, a, I guess, a theoretical answer and I think kind of a broad experiential answer. Now, if you remember in the first ever lecture I gave you, I talked about this idea that there are kind of two definitions of forensic psychology, right? The, the first definition is this idea of the, 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 the specific narrow view on forensic psychology, which is this forensic psychologist, right, as traditionally defined, who probably has a PhD in clinical psychology, so a PsyD, does treatment programs, does one-to-one -one work with offenders, and really focuses on the, on the individual criminal at that one-to-one that -one relationship. Now, now, sometimes they can create bigger things than that. They can use their experiences as a clinician to create theories for the world, right? They can, they can change the world, they can, they can have broad, broad reach, right? But they start off very much at this idea of I'm going to work with a person, a criminal, a individual, and I'm going to kind of cut my teeth very much in this therapeutic context. Now, when I was coming up through my PhD, you could, you could, there were, there were PhD programs that were specifically for this narrow definition. And so they looked like you would do maybe two years of theory, 
And then you would do a, a practice year, right? It's almost medical in this sense, right? You do rotations, you do placements, you go and study under different clinicians, you go to a prison for a, for a, 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 a round of experience, you go to a juvenile centre for a round of experience, right? And then you come back and you finish off your PhD and then you go into the workforce, right? And almost if, if anyone's... Um, familiar with any of the military psychologists. There's a very similar track when you're looking at being a military psychologist, is there's this very much clinical track that makes you a clinician, one-to-one, -one, working with, well, military psychology patients and veterans, in forensic psychology, working with offenders or, 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 or people with uh, adverse life experiences that need these kind of interventions, right? So the first track you're gonna have is this idea of this narrow form of forensic psychology. Right? And I think that's probably the most easy to navigate through. Like if you went on Google and typed in being a forensic psychologist, right? That's kind of the one that would clearly present itself to you. It's very much the clinical track going through a clinical program. Now, what I also think about, and, and, and there's two flavors to this, is there's this idea of the broad definition of forensic psychology, right? If you remember from that first class, the broad definition of forensic psychology. It's the application of any form of psychology to any aspect of the clinical, or sorry, of the um, criminal justice process, right? So that's really, really broad. You can have anything in there. You can be a neuroscientist, right? And be involved in forensic psychology. You can be a cognitive psychologist and be involved in forensic psychology. You can be an evolutionary biologist or psychologist and be involved in forensic psychology. And I think when you look at those two things, the, the, the kind of the differences to note is it's almost like what word do you want to define you first? Right? If you're a forensic psychologist, right, that is the clinical track. But you can also be a cognitive psychologist, a developmental psychologist, a neuropsychologist, a um, evolutionary psychologist, a quantum psychologist, right, and apply it to the forensic field. And therefore, in doing so, would you be and again, this is a very, very nuanced argument, would you be the accredited legal definition of a forensic psychologist? No. But would you be a psychologist working in the forensic field and doing work that is of relevance to the criminal justice process? Yes, you would. And so I think you've got these kind of, the, the first idea to get into your head is if you're going to through this idea, right? Which of these two pathways is the one that calls out to you most, right? Is it core, core clinical forensics or is it the broader, writ large idea of forensics, right? But then there's another stage after that that I think is really interesting. And that is, let's say I want to be or use psychology. And let's say I want to use psychology in the criminal justice process, right? So we'll just adopt the framework of being broad, if you will, right? How do I want to govern my relationship or my role in society when doing this kind of work, right? And so a lot of people, I think there are many different ways that this can go. I don't think a lot of people realize how many different flavors there are to being quote unquote, a psychologist and doing, you know, quote unquote, forensic or, or any kind of psychology, right? So the first route you can go, and I know this is a very detailed answer to a question that probably didn't want it, but the first route you can go is you can go down the academic route, right? And I'm going to give you the, the routes and I'm going to give you the pros and cons of each route. Again, this is in my experience, my opinion. Um, 
that this is, you know, it's like that whenever you watch a YouTube video on investing advice. Not a financial, not a financial, not financial advice, but here's my financial advice, right? Not career advice, but here's my career advice, right? It's not even advice, it's career commentary. Is so you can go down the academic route, right? Which is what you're seeing, right? This is hello, hi, academic route. Didn't start in the academic route, but academic route 101, right? Go do a PhD, go join a university, right? Go, uh, go get bogged down in the joys of academia and do your research, right? Do your studies, publish or perish, right? Work with data, work with students, teach a class, right? Have, I guess, the allure of being in a university and the esteem and all of the, you know, things that come with being a university professor, you know, wear leather elbow patches and prance around like you're Indiana Jones. All fantastic things, right? That's one root of being a forensic psychologist, right? And it's one of the main ones, right? We go into universities, we get our PhD, we do our research, right? We use the space and the freedom that we're given in an institution to take bold risks, to ask bold questions, to be an academic, but always thinking about the application of psychology and, and, and crime, right? I mean, that's one of the, what are the pros of this? Well, I mean, the pros of this are evident. I mean, I, I you know, we, we live exciting lives. I think, I think academia, I have, I have good friends of mine on Wall Street, um, and we debate all the time, and I, I honestly think academia done well is probably the best quality of life. I know everyone thinks, you know, that, you know, Wall Street bankers have the best, well, not everyone thinks this, everyone hates them, but some people think Wall Street bankers have the best quality of life. No, I don't think they have very good quality of life, don't get me wrong. Love the Wolf of Wall Street, personal inspiration. Um, but they, you know, we, I get freedom, I get autonomy, I get to be myself, I get to wake up. Someone once said, you know, in academia you wake up and you decide to study something. Nowhere else lets you do that, where you just wake up and say, today I'm going to do this, right? And so you can do that in academia as a forensic psychologist, right? Wake up and say, right, do you know what? I'm gonna go into interrogation, and I'm gonna try and learn about interrogation. I'm gonna study interrogation, right? And we get this amazing freedom to think differently, to write differently, to challenge people's perceptions and ideas and build, if you will, the science of forensic psychology. And it is unbelievably exciting. And when, when done well, when done well, Forensic psychologists in academia can do some of the most incredible things. I mean, you, you know, I, I talk about Lawrence a lot. Um, Lawrence Allison and his orbit work and his profiling work and his uh, the Kirat tool and, and all of it and his interrogation work and the trainings that he does. Right, Lawrence Allison, you know, to me represents forensic psychology at its absolute finest in that he is an academic. He's one of the best in the world. I mean, he's the second most published author on forensic psychology in the last 30 years, according to a paper I was reading the other day. But he's never in the ivory tower. He's out in the real world. He's doing trainings. He's doing programs. He's helping people. He's advising on cases. He's taking on tough questions and all this kind of stuff. And, and luck, I'm very, very lucky that I've modeled myself on that. And so I do the exact same thing. I spend half my time out of the office in the real world, talking about real problems, solving real problems. You know, I'd really, really be out there. And that's forensic psychology at its finest, right? But it takes, you, it takes you a while, I think, sometimes to get there. It takes patience to get there and trust and hard work and a lot of luck to get there. Um, you know, there are costs to this. Good <laughs> God, this question's going long. Uh, that's on me, everyone. Buckle in. No, there are costs to the academic route, right? You can, you know, you can, 
you have to publish, right? You know, you have to publish in certain journals. You have to, you, there is a pressure to bend the knee to the norms of academia um, and to, you know, do the kind of, of, of studies and methods and research that is publishable. And I, some, of the, some of the best projects I've done or most important projects I've done have been phenomenally unpublishable. And some of the best publications I have come from projects that probably have the least impact or use for the real world. Academia is a, is a micro ecosystem and you have to, you re, you have to realize you're in it and you are governed by it. And you know, not everyone likes that, right? So that's one track you can go down, right? The other track you can go down, and I went down this track in the first few years of my career was I said, screw, screw, screw academia. Um, I don't want to be in an office writing theory, probably called it theorem because I was snobby and an idiot. Um, I don't want to be in an office. I want to be in the real world. I want to see my impact. Right? I want to see change in front of me. I want to wrestle with something in the real world. I want to, I want to do something today and see it, see its benefit tomorrow. Right? So I actually left after my master's and I went and worked with the government as a psychologist. Right? They, they, they had junior level social psychologist positions to go out and, uh, and help with the Afghanistan effort. I mean, not go out to Afghanistan. I could long story. Um, I, I went to the, 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 the government's like secret science lab, they call it. Um, Sherlock made that comment in one of his episodes about the Howard of Baskerville, I suppose there. But uh, I went and I worked there and I spent, you know, a year and a half, you know, doing research that would answer a question for someone in Afghanistan today, in Afghanistan tomorrow, in Afghanistan, going out to Afghanistan in a month, right? And sometimes you get a real thrill from that. Now, what are the pros? I mean, the pros are you, you get, I mean, the things you do when you work for the government. I mean, there are, I mean, I said, that, you know, very few jobs give you the excitement and opportunity and, and challenge that the government does. You know, and I, I, you know I, I've got a lot of friends in the US government. I know a lot of students who have come up in the US government. And the things these people are doing in the first two, three, four years um, out of college is incredible. The projects they lead, the... The, the things they do in the world, the, the, the challenges they take on, the excitement they must feel. You know, I really remember some of my most, you know, some of the excite, most excited memories I had were pulling all-nighters for the government. Second most excited memory was pulling all-nighters to study for my finals, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, but, the, uh, but no, like pulling all-nighters and sleeping on, an, on, the, on the floor of a base and, you know, just doing a 22-hour shift powered by coffee, but really feeling like you were doing something, right? And so there's this government route, and I'd encourage all of you to look at it, all of you to look at the agencies, the police, the local, the state, to get in the real world, get involved. And you can still get involved and use psychology, right? Some of them have specific science positions, if you will, analyst positions, and some of them you go into the agency, and when you're there, you, you kind of learn to apply the psychology then. Now, there's cons to that. I think there's cons. Uh, the cons are... Um, you know, you are in government, and being in government is precisely that. You are in government. It comes with government quality of life. Uh, it comes with government bureaucracy. It comes with, you know, all of the... And, and from a scientific standpoint, you know, government agencies... In, my experience, again, my experience only. Government, interior, uh, government agencies' interior science isn't as rigorous as academic science because they don't have the time. They don't have the luxury of resources in terms of time as a resource, students as a resource... You know, they don't work in that academic environment, right? Academia is supposed to be loosey-goosey and empty so you can think and really take time on something. And government doesn't really work in that same way. It's got time pressures, real issues, right? So 
Sometimes you don't feel as fulfilled with the quality of the science that you may do in academia, but you feel more open about the about the uh, the impact of the science, right? And in academia, you can still I had to learn this. In academia, you can still have the impact, but it takes you a lot longer to get it. In government, you can have the impact straight away, but if you want quote unquote, I guess, science and to do good psychology. Normally that isn't done within the government. That's the application of science and application of psychology. And then there's this kind of middle route that I only just start to really learn about and see a lot more of and, and I think realize how big it was. But a lot of people just do it privately. You know, there's, there's private research firms that, that, that compete for grants like a university that win research funding to do studies, to develop data, you know, and they don't have the, you know, the pros. You're doing all of the good things of academia. You're getting all of the openness and all the excitement and all of the caliber of, of living a life of doing applied work for the government and applied research but the costs i guess are you're effectively running a business so you know you have to you have to worry about paychecks you have to worry about winning a grant to keep you going you have to worry about what happens if the money dries up right so there's a few different ways you can take forensic psychology right you can take it down a clinical route you can take it down a broad experimental applied research route right and again there are probably a hundred more flavors of this that I've forgotten. I'm nearly talking about, I guess, my, my flavor of forensic and investigative psychology, right? And then within the broad route, you can go in academia and, and do and be and search and study whatever you want. You can go into government and start really working on these things and changing lives immediately. Or you can go into business and kind of, you know, live in the business world and, 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 and challenge and take on these things. And, you know, those organizations are more adaptive often, more fast moving, more energetic, more exciting. You know, I know a lot of some, some of the best scholars I know in the world work for themselves as business owners. So there's no perfect here. So if you're ever thinking about a, a, a career or a job in forensic psychology or a, or a future in forensic psychology, the questions you need to ask come down to what do you want psychology to do for you? And what do you want your life to be like? Is it a clinical life? Is it listening? Is it helping? Is it empathy? Is it a research life? Is it creativity, exploration, um, boundary pushing, right? Challenge, taking on everyone else in the field and trying to prove that your theory is right? Or is it maybe a government or applied uh, pathway that's excitement, that's energy, that's in the real world, right? Sometimes maybe you have to lose a bit of the science to do that, right? But you get so much more fulfillment in actually changing something and seeing it and being at the problem's edge. And I think that's a really interesting question for all psychologists. And I think with all routes, you, you know, there's flexibility and movement between them. But if I were to take a step back and say what I think the pathways are for someone who would be in your position, looking at entering the field, they're kind of the broad ones that I would throw up for you. So in terms of question one, which I somehow think took me 20 minutes to answer, that is what the careers in forensic psychology are and or could be. So with that, to the next one. So the next question was basically, I guess, about how I got into forensic psychology or this career with a CJ bachelor's degree. Now the first spoiler alert is I don't have a single degree in CJ. Never even knew it existed until I came to this program. I am actually still convinced that CJ may actually just be forensic psychology. Um, no CJ person in the field would like to hear me say that, and they would probably tell me how phenomenally wrong I am. Um, how I got into this field, I think there's some really interesting parts of it that I think stem 
from unique differences between the UK and the US educationally. But I started off with a undergraduate degree in psychology, right? But I knew at 15 I wanted to do the psychology of criminals. I think my view on it is more broader now, so I think I just enjoy the psychology of, of, of extremes, of, of people at the edges uh, and, and under, in, in, in unique and stressful environments. I think criminals are within that, but I also think, you know, there's things like first responders in that, there's military in that. I think I'm more now broad to, to human behavior at its, extrem at its extremities. But it started off very much as, you know, human beings in their extreme. You know, my mother's a phenomenal hoarder. Um, and I, I went home recently and she was like, well, do you still need these notes from when you were 17? And I was like, funnily enough, no, I don't. But I opened it up and I found my first essay and it was an essay on Charles Manson. And I tried to use Bowlby's attachment theory to explain why he was the worst. Um, and so at my undergraduate degree, when I was going through it, I, um, you know, I started looking to, well, well, who are the forensic psychologists and what are the pathways that they've taken? Um, and I found a couple, David Cantor being one, who we talked about in week one, Lawrence Allison being another, who we have talked about uh, continually, mainly because Lawrence is nicer to me than David. Um, David's not nice to anyone. Um, and, uh, and so I looked at what they did, and they went, and I knew that they went off, and they, they did a master's program. And that master's program was at Liverpool, and you know they all went and they did their PhDs. And so for the next step, always thinking one step ahead, I was like, right, that's what I'll go do. I'll go do the master's. I think you... With psychology, you generally need a master's if you want to specialise, unless you want to go into a, a, a broad company-wide development scheme in which you just need a degree. So most of my friends with psychology degrees went and did, you know, placements or, or development programmes at, you know, business firms and things like that. And I was like, no, I'm, I want to be forensic, so I need to specialise. So I went and did the master's in forensic and investigative psychology. Um, and I ended up getting uh, recruited to go down and work with the police for my masters, uh, which I, I did because Lawrence was, was leading that project and I, I wanted to be more applied and go see a bit more of the real world, so I, I did that. Um, and then, I, I, um, um, and then I, I, I was doing police work and I decided not to go do a PhD. Um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll thread through, I think, what the, what the lines are, I guess, with some kind of career advice at some point. Um, decided not to do a PhD. I uh, decided, a bit like my last answer, that I wanted to get into the world. I wanted to, to make a change. I wanted to leave the laboratory, leave the ivory tower. I never really thought it was an ivory tower because I'm British, but uh, leave, I guess, that protective bubble and go out and, and, and just be young. And so, so to tell you the full story, I then went, I, had to, I applied for a couple of jobs. I had two jobs in front of me. One job was uh, MI5 Secret Service. Wasn't meant to tell anyone when I was applying. I think I told everybody, but never mind. Sorry. Uh, MI5 Secret Service. And the other was a company called the Defence Science Technology Laboratory, which was an arm of the, the UK government, the UK Army's science department. Uh, and I got to, to the end of both. And this job was called Intelligence Analyst. And this job was called Social Psychologist. And I was like, right, well, this is a no-brainer. Social psychologist. I, I didn't want to. I think my exact words were: I didn't study four years of forensic psychology to abandon it on the day, on the first day I was given a job. Um, so I went and I did the army work. And actually, what's funny? Two things are funny. One, they actually have psychologists inside that you don't know about until you're inside. And two, I only know that because when I went into this job, we all ended up working together anyway. So kind of didn't really lose anything in that. Um, and then I uh, ended up, so when I went to, the, to DSDL, 
I was very much of that ilk of I want excitement, I want impact, I want to do things that no one else has done or very few people are willing to do with psychology. And so when I turned up on the, on the, on the job interview, I, I was well aware that they sent scientists to, to Afghanistan. And I said, like, that's legitimately why I'm here. Like, I'm, I'm here to go to war. Uh, which sounds very strange, but I think if you imagine at the time I was 23, possibly 23, uh, 23 and just wanted adventure. I wanted to see where science could go. I wanted to see how far and how good psychology could be. And, you know, you only get, I don't know, you only get a chance to, to, to help that much, that young, like, once. You don't really get a chance. It's not something you can take for granted. So I said, like, that's what I want. And, uh, and it basically it turned out that they were no longer sending scientists because it was around 2013, the war was, was, was drawing down, um, and so they weren't sending scientists. And so almost to relate back to our first question about what I wanted, I was like, well, if I can't go to war and I can't be at the very, very top end of impact, I'll just go to academia and I'll do science well and I can still have impact. You know, I'd seen what Lawrence had done. So I was like, I'll, just, I'll go off and do science. So I did, I ended up getting recruited by someone who was at Penn State and I came out and started doing all this terrorism stuff. And I almost gave, wait, I almost gave up on forensic psychology. I don't think as a, as a future, but I went into this very much like terrorist psychology and Alejandro talked about it, um, doing almost defense psychology. Um, and I started doing a PhD in military decision-making and I almost forgot these roots of offender profiling and interrogation and risk assessment and all of these elements that I'd focused on in my course. And then weirdly, and this is going to sound really strange, th probably why I have such an affinity for this course, this course was offered to me. So I was at UMass Lowell now, and the, the, head of the, the, the head at the time came to me and said, you know, like, right, do, do you want to teach a course? We need someone to teach a course in forensic psychology. I was like, ha, funny, funny story. I do forensic psychology. Um, and again, it's almost what, what happens when you're in academia. You can kind of do these kind of things. And so I, I built this course and it brought up all the memories I had of all my education and all the theories and topics I've kind of been thinking about. It almost brought me back to being a core forensic psychology researcher and thinking a lot more about the offender and the behavior and all this kind of stuff. And that then brings me to, well, where I am now, which is, you know, my basement recording a video on an iPhone. So we'll call that a success, I guess, maybe we won't. But I think to answer the question of, I guess, how did I go from a CJ bachelor's degree to, I guess, a, a, a career in the field, and I'm very blessed to say I probably do have a career in the field. Um, it would be knowing what I wanted at each step. So knowing what I, why I was going into each area. When I left academia, I knew why. When I came back to academia, I knew why. So knowing what I want out of what I'm choosing, I think was very, 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 very important to make sure I made the right decisions early. And then it's gonna sound really bad, but I can't think of a better thing. I worked really hard. Like I, I have a, a general model in life, which is you never know which meeting or which opportunity is going to be the one that changes your life. So attend all of them. And if nine of them suck, yeah, nine of them suck. But if one of them, hits, that could change your life. So I was offered, you know, trips all over when I was in the UK, or research meetings all over, and they were always a huge pain. And, you know, I was asked if I wanted to go to uh, rural Pennsylvania and talk to one guy about a project. And I was like, sure, yes, is that, all right, I'll go. And talk to a guy called John Horgan, who's a good friend of mine today and a huge mentor of mine. 
and he offered me a job and then I, you know, so a lot of it was just, just being out there, being open and chasing everything I could chase. And look, that's just what I did. Um, you know, that, that's what I, I guess that's how I did it, but there's, there's no real, I guess, magic bullet. But I mean, I think I, to relate that to all of you, when I think about what the students that I've seen go into the fields from CJ bachelors, they have the same mentality, you know, they graduate with an honours, a minor, a concentration, they try and get an internship if they can, they try to do additional experiences if they can, they just chase everything. And they try and do as many things as they can within the, the, rare, the very real limitations of what life allows us to take. And the more of that you do, the more lucky, I guess you will eventually view that you became. So that is my answer to how I took a CJ degree, didn't get one, and turned it into a career in the field of forensic psychology. So with that, I'm gonna move us on to our next question, which is even more interesting. Okay, third question. Now this actually question I think is really, really interesting. And it's how do you separate or protect yourself when working in this field? And it's, I don't know, I really should be a lot more aware of what I put you all through. Um, I do feel bad, but you know, I mean, you, I don't know what your other courses present you with. I don't know what your other courses bring to the table and show you. But I mean, we, we have heavy lectures. You know, we had a couple of weeks ago, the J.D. Bolger case, that one's always heavy. Um, you know, we have, you know, we start the week with a, with a pregnant woman hanging from the rafters of her garage. We have the Colin Stagg, the Rachel Nicole case, which is, and the Samantha Bissett murder, which again is, is a phenomenally brutal murder. And you know, so I'm sure you've probably had to feel it, or maybe you felt it in yourself, but there is this real question when dealing or, or being a forensic psychologist, you know, where, how do we handle this kind of material? Now, it's a very interesting relationship. Uh, and so there's, I've seen it, there's, there's, there's a, a place in the middle, which is being able to tolerate it, but also being aware that it, that, that it is going to affect you. Then there's not wanting to go anywhere near it because you don't think you can handle it and or you don't want to handle it. And then there's this other one at the end, which is almost seeking it out and seeking out gore and extremity and abhorrence in order to advance who you, kind of your own excitement and kind of how interesting your own life is. So I think this idea of handling the emotion of dealing with criminal cases is really interesting. In fact, I was doing the, the master's level forensic psychology course um, a couple of weeks ago and I was doing one of the online chats in the evening. And I was talking to, we were talking about a documentary that was just posted and there was this one forensic psychologist who interviewed this, I can't remember who the criminal was, but interviewed this criminal for like years afterwards and became like their confidant and like he knew what hospital she was giving birth at and she knew everything about him and they basically, and he was like really, really, really close. And I was looking at it and I said, well, that, what I think that person's doing is they're basically using that person's notoriety and the abhorrence and extremity of what they did. And they're kind of using it to leverage their own personal brand of look how exciting the person I interview is and look how amazing this person is. And I've seen that even all across the field, right? And then think about this. We deal with, you know, we deal with the Sarnayevs of the world. We deal with the mass shooters of the world. We deal with the, with the murderers of the world, with the serial killers of the world, right? And there is a public interest in those people and you can almost lose yourself and over 
identify with the idea that then there's kind of a public interest in you because you have specialist knowledge about these people. And like that's a really interesting relationship. And I've seen it go too far when you almost get disrespect for the victims and, and reverence for what the people have actually done and who they've harmed because you're kind of lost in the allure of what you're getting by proxy. And I, I've never been that way. Um, but I mean, I've, I've seen it. I've seen a lot of people go that way. So that's the, 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 the far too far. And then there's the kind of the far too left, which is I just need to keep away from everything because I just don't think I'm going to be able to handle it. And I think that's very, very fair. And I think there are a lot of people who who there are certain things that they just don't want to study. I mean, you know, there's, there's, that, that becomes, there's, there's research debates around that, right? You know, in order to study terrorism, one of the things that you are meant to be open to do is potentially interviewing terrorists. And I know a lot of people who have said they refuse to interview a terrorist because they don't, they can't ethically bring themselves to talk to them or to hear about it, right? And obviously that is true in child sex offenders. That's true in murderers, right? You, there, you, can, you can be on one end where you really don't want to go anywhere near them and therefore you stay away from the whole field. Absolutely fine with that. My point on that would be, as long as you, uh, as long as your research doesn't require you to get any closer, then stay as far away as you want to. Like, don't you don't need to get close to the material. You don't need to get close to the materials and the people. However, if you're trying to study the psychology of them and you're not opening yourself up to see who they are, then I think that's a problem. And this is what we saw in Alejandro lecture on terrorism. I think the whole field of terrorism was not designed around actually learning from terrorists and, and being open to and speaking to and actually seeking to understand terrorists. It was more of the, I'm just going to stand very, very far away and tell you what I think, right? And that's when I think science goes a bit wrong. So science goes wrong over here, science goes wrong over here. And then there's this place in the middle where you have to deal with what you can deal with and get as close to the material as you have to, but you also have to be very, very aware of what it is going to do to you. And so I'll, I'll give you my story, I guess it kind of, and I'll, I'll give you two stories, I guess. But, but the first one I have is, so when I did the uh, risk assessment work with the, you'll remember we did that risk assessment activity with prioritizing the offenders. And I told you I had to, you know, I worked on that project. You know, I spent eight weeks uh, in the police department coding uh, the materials and the cases, which is reading the interrogations, reading their, Skype transcripts, looking at and coding the, 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 their collections and all this kind of stuff, like really abhorrent. And, and Lawrence said to me, he's like, you need to have a protection plan. And, uh, and so I came up with a brilliant protection plan. Uh, I took up golf uh, and decided that it would be something for me to focus on, right? So every weekend I would go play golf and it would be new and exciting and a new sport. And every evening I would be trying to think about my new sport. Uh, to distract me from what I've been dealing with that day. I mean, my personal view is golf is great for that because I was so bad at it that uh, I, just, I was so angry at golf, I never even cared about what I was reading because all I could care about was how unable I was to hit the stupid bloody golf ball. Um, so that was my like protection plan, but it, but it shows you that you, you do really need to think about this carefully and you need to plan. And also sometimes you... You need to be open to the fact that some things will get you and you don't even know what they will be. And I think that's something really to be like, it's almost like a leave your ego at the door. I think there was a, a young hubrism in me of I'm young, I'm invincible. I can pretty much handle anything you throw at me. I can handle the worst of the worst. 
Um, and I mean, I would get caught sometimes, like a certain case would catch me or a certain incident would catch me or something about a victim would, would, would attach or feel differently. And I'd have to take a walk. I mean, uh, when, when we were doing the work, we used to just walk out, you know, like, you know, like you need an ice cream? Cool, let's go. So I think you have to be open and, and weirdly, I mean, you, know, you really do have to be in touch with, with how you're reacting to things. And never, never let your reaction to things overcome what you actually need to do and never make it about your reactions. But, but don't ever... Don't ever feel that you can't react and that it's bad to react. Just be able to monitor it. And so one of the things I would say is, weirdly, over the years, I think, um, I've, I've had to be aware of my tolerance and be aware of what I can and can't handle. And, I mean, I when I brought the Jamie Bolger case up to you in class, it, I, it felt different to me now than it did seven years ago when I last kind of thought about that case. And so I've, I've noticed, I think, over time, it, it is wearing on me. And I talk to people all the time about it. And, you know, you just work in a certain area on a certain topic. And, and sometimes intellectual excitement and energy can keep you going. And then as you start to work with something for a lot longer, you know, it, it slowly starts to, I guess, dull the protective barrier and things start to affect you a lot more. I mean, look, I, I deal with a lot of difficult stuff. There's no questions about it. The decision-making stuff isn't easy. You know, interviewing soldiers about, you know, about decisions that have resulted in death of, of other soldiers and civilians is not easy. Interviewing doctors around decisions that have resulted in deaths of patients, not easy. Forensic psychology, looking at terrorists whose killings have, have, have named and killed children, not easy. You know, none of this is easy, but I'm relatively good at knowing what I am and am not able to handle and when I'm not. And so like, when it comes to dealing with it and avoid, there was a really good question about avoiding burnout. I honestly think it's just, it's just being aware that you aren't a superhero, being aware that nobody is impressed if you pretend or try and be a superhero and building in a decent protection plan. Like all things, you know, revising, if revising gives you burnout, you need a protection plan. Right? You need to know when the revision is going to get you down and you need to know what your, what your circuit breaker is. Is it you get down and do 20 press-ups? Is it you go for a run? Is it you eat a tub of Ben & Jerry's? Is it you watch a comedy show? The one thing I noticed weirdly about the, some of the darker work I did was my comedy taste changed. And I, I really got into this uh, English comedian called Jimmy Carr who just tells dark one-liners. He just stands there for an hour and says one-liner after one-liner. Never liked him before. Weirdly... That was what was helping. And so you really have to be in touch with your own psychology to know when something's helping and know when something's hurting and just be mature enough to, you know, to, to take a step back when you need to. Like, and, and so that, that's kind of, I guess, my, it, from my experience, that's the answer. It's being open to feeling what you're feeling and thinking ahead of what can I do or what should I do if that feeling ever becomes a bit more unmanageable. And, you know, we have to govern that on a day-to-day -day scale, on a month-to-month -month scale, and, you know, sometimes on a year-to-year -year scale. I know people have walked away from fields and just said, I'm done. Ten years in this area, no, no interest anymore, I'm out. And, you know, that's just the way it is. So we always have to protect ourselves, but we have to just think about it uh, from a, uh, think about it from a, a kind of a, a in touch with our own feelings. Like, we have to be our own psychologists. <laughs> Which doesn't, doesn't go very well for me. Okay, everybody, with the last 
question in our, I guess, thematic groups of questions. We are going to talk about ethical issues in forensic psychology. Now, this is a huge topic. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how to approach it. I think that there's, there's a lot of case studies and case examples of forensic psychologists getting in ethical issues. So let's think about ethical issues in, in two, two, what, two forms, right? The first, I think, is three forms. The first is, is, is ethical protection of the subject. The next is ethical protection of the self. And the next is ethical protection of the field of forensic psychology, right? So ethical protection of the subject. There are a few different ways you can think about this. The first is we have to always be aware of what harm we are causing of a subject by doing the research we are doing on them. And this can range from a lot of ways. I mean, so for example, with decision-making work, I had to be acutely aware of raising discussions or memories of people that were traumatic. Yes, I had a need. Yes, I had a psychological question. Yes, I had a, there was an impact and a purpose for that question, but that never outweighed being delicate with their, their reaction and what could happen to them. And so I think in any area, if you're doing forensic interviewing, if you're doing victim interviewing, if you're doing police decision maker interviewing, if you're doing offender interviewing, you know, we have to be really, really aware of protecting the safety of the subject with the way in which we collect data from them, what we and what we, you know, what we put them through and, and what we unearth and what we, you know, psychology is a really interesting place. You can, if you ever really sit with a psychologist, right, and you really talk to them, and I don't mean like superficially talk to them, I mean really talk to them, like uh, a psychologist has the power to to shake your foundations of what you think, right? In the way they ask you questions or the way they make you think about things, right? And that's a very dangerous thing to be doing, especially with a group of people who are, who are vulnerable and or uh, and or potentially dangerous to society. You don't always want to be to be shaking them up and making them question things unless there's a there's, there's a good in that. And so I think that's really a, a big thing we have to deal with because when it comes to ethics in general, right, it's, it's pros and cons, right? Zimbardo was, was ethical because what we learned outweighed what we did. Milgram was ethical because what we learned outweighed what we did. Apparently enhanced interrogation was ethical because what we learned outweighed what we did. We know in almost all three cases that is not true. That is, uh, in all three, that's not the case. Um, but, you know, when it comes to forensic psychology, and I think this is the burden that's placed upon us, we, we have this great perception of the need for the science, right? The need for interrogation, the need to understand offenders' behaviour and offenders' decision-making, the need to understand um, uh, crimes and criminal behaviour. And in that need you can often justify a lot of things that can be damaging or dangerous to the defendant or sorry, the, 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 the subject themselves. And so I think we always have to be very, very acutely aware of, of what damage we may be doing in the quest of science to the person. And even if they are an offender, and even if they are incarcerated, and even if they have been deemed guilty, that doesn't take away their right. If anything, I think it actually amps it up a lot more because, you know, we're meant to be reshaping them and helping them and, and bringing them back to society. So a lot of big ethical questions there. And another case I'll give you, or almost more pragmatically, but this is a big thing with forensic psychology in the applied sense, 
One of the ethical issues we have to juggle is what happens if we interview someone or we study someone or something and they unearth information that is incriminating to themselves or others, right? And so this happens in a single interview. I mean, we've had this in, in single interviews with terrorists. If they, you know, they, they start a sentence with nobody knows I did this but, right? Or nobody knows this person's one of us but, right? We have a, a responsibility to kind of report these things or, or, you know, to handle these things. And so sometimes there's cases of handling information that you shouldn't know but have come out because either the person tells you or you build a report. And there's a really interesting example of this in the, um, I think it was BU, who have the IRA tapes. And in the IRA tapes is incriminating information about a currently active uh, Irish politician, I believe. And there's a huge ethical issue there about the tapes were never meant to be released until, uh, and, uh, for 50 years in the assumption that anyone mentioning them would die by then and therefore couldn't be held accountable. Um, and they ended up getting released early or, or something, they came out early. And so suddenly now there's this huge issue of a bunch of people who told a bunch of research under the auspices of non-identifiability and they, would, they, they wouldn't be released or held culpable. Um, for research purposes, now are suffering the consequences of that. So there's also these really interesting examples where you have to manage almost what the person's going to tell you in the instance that it puts you in an ethical position where you have to maybe change or report or something like that. Very, very rare, but I mean, I've come across quite a few. Um, and another ethical issue with, the, with regards to, I guess, the self or the subject, um, and I mentioned this in class, I believe, is... You know, there was an argument in terrorism recently about a finding that terrorist subjects are more likely than the average criminal to um, to recidivate, so to go back to a life of crime after prison. And lawyers were using that in the courtroom to argue that newly convicted people, so people on trial right now for terrorism, should be given larger sentences because, quote unquote, the science showed that they were going to be more likely to recidivate. And so I think there's this big ethical question of the interpretation of our findings and being really acutely aware of how our findings could be used or applied in the legal world. And we have to be aware of that. You know, it, it's all very well and good having a big limitation section in a study that says, well, you know, the sample was biased for this reason, this reason, this reason. We didn't know this for this reason, this reason, this reason. And therefore, you know, take our findings with a grain of salt and more replication is needed and more substance is needed, right? You can write a massive limitation section, but a lawyer's not going to read it and he's going to read the abstract and then take the abstract to court and slap it in front of the jury and say, look what this science found. So we also have to be really aware of how our findings can be contorted or used or applied in the real world and what that can mean for the experience of not our subjects, but I guess the, the, the members of the subjects pool, if you will. So another really interesting ethical issue. The ethical issue, I think, on the self that we have to handle is we always have to be acutely aware of the, of the need to protect ourselves um, when doing this research. And obviously that links to the, to the question I had before about protecting the self mentally, but also protecting the self physically. Um, you know, so for example, psychology is a female bias, uh, is a female bias um, 
uh, research subject, right? My, my degree, I think, was 90-10 or 80-20, females to males, right? So forensic psychology is realistically probably got the same, maybe slightly less, but probably the same gender distribution, right? What do you do if you are doing a subject, or if you're doing a study that involves interviewing ex-terrorist members or ex-gang members or ex-any uh, kind of criminal offender? You have to be aware of the risk that you're putting your yourself and or your you know your staff or colleagues in by sending them to do research. So, so for example, I'm, I'm doing some work at the moment on uh, artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence may vary between ourselves and our adversaries. And one of our adversaries is obviously China. Um, and I was looking at potentially sending people to China to do re to do interviews with you know Chinese technicians or something like this, again, just an idea, to see what their view of AI was, right? All open source, all this kind of stuff. But the first thing you have to think about is, well, what are the risks to, to the person who goes and what are the, what risk are they placing themselves in by going out there on this quest for knowledge and quest for data? And I mean, look, that's a very benign example from forensic psychology, but if you do any of your classes in political science or international relations, you know, you're talking about field research in, in, in countries that are currently at war. You're talking about interviews um, with, uh, in, 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 in countries that are currently run by warlords. You're talking about, I mean, some of the, some of the uh, faculty in our school who are phenomenal have done, you know, research in, you know, under, you know, some of the boroughs of New York around sex trafficking, you know, really dangerous places if, if handled incorrectly. So ethically, we always have to think about the self, right, and, and, and what we and whether we are putting ourselves unduly at risk in quote unquote quest for data, right? And, and we really have to manage that, it's really, really important. Um, and I think the final area when it comes to the ethical issues we have is, is we do have to, you know, <laughs> think of the NFL, protect the shield. Um, we do have to protect the field and the integrity of psychology, right? So I'll give you a I'll give you an example, it's not about psychology, but it's a funny example. Is so. Um, I used to be at Penn State, and, and as you'll know, Penn State had the uh, the Sandusky scandal. Um, and at the time, we were doing a research project trying to interview former extremists. Um, and one of the former extremists said that they couldn't speak to us because we were affiliated with Penn State, which had obviously just had a significant sex uh, sex offending scandal, and he couldn't ethically bring himself to speak with us. And I, <laughs> interesting when you're being ethically uh, outdone by a former extremist, uh, former terrorist. But okay, well, never mind. Um, but you do have to think, like, the word psychology is a brand, right? Forensic psychology is a brand. A university is a brand. And so when you are behaving and thinking about your data and your science, the negative repercussions can affect the whole field. And a really good example of that would be the CIA's torture program, which resulted in the American Psychological Association, has a number of different subsidiaries, uh, one of which is, is military psychology, Division 19, which I'm, I'm, I'm affiliated with. Um, and that action led to the decision to almost excommunicate all military psychologists, to ban all military psychologists from Guantanamo Bay, to stymie any effort of military psychologists to ever do any work ever. And 99% of military psychologists are doing veteran PTSD and moral injury treatment, and the psychologists in Guantanamo Bay were doing treatment and assessment. There's only the 1% that was, you know, Mitchell and Jensen who were doing waterboarding. 
So when it comes to the ethical boundaries, we have to think about what our actions will do to our whole field. And sometimes think about, as a field, what will this mean for all of us? So again, the BU thing is a, as an example of data being collected that then created this ethical qualm. That realistically could stop anyone from ever being able to interview a terrorist ever again. Because they will have seen what happened and will now believe that it can happen, rightfully so, now believe that it could happen to them and they will have no interest in talking to you. So you also ethically have to think about how your behaviour will be, will be, will, will, will affect the field or a whole group of people as a whole. And again, you know, it may sound corporatist, but, you know, we owe our duty to all of the forensic psychologists. And I would, I would hate to think of a situation where I made an ethical decision and I was wrong. And not only was I held accountable, but all psychologists or all forensic psychologists suffered as a result of a decision I made. Right? I would, you know, that's not a good ethical place to be. In. And also, it's not a good ethical place to be in when my research is stymied because somebody else made a dumb decision. So really, you do sometimes have to think about the whole field and yourself and the brand of psychology and the brand of forensic psychology when making ethical decisions. So there's no real answer. I think there's so many issues here. But if I were to briefly put it down, I'd say we have to think about the subject subjects and all future potential subjects when we think about how research can be applied forward in law we have to think about ourselves protecting those that we that work for us or our ourselves when collecting data specifically with dangerous populations in dangerous places and we do have to think about the field and and, and the brand as a whole and make sure we're, we're behaving in a way that would be viewed as as proper and doesn't put any any of the field's progress in jeopardy. So I think if you take all three of those together, that is probably how I would attempt to juggle the ethical quandary of forensic psychology. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for your attention up to this point. Let's get in to the rapid fire question and answering for the rest of the questions that came across my way. Now, Let's get straight into it. So, can you please post the slides from last class? Yes, I can. I am possibly the worst professor at running a class. I, this may be why I only teach one class, because I clearly cannot handle it. So, yes, the slides will be up. Do not blame Alejandro. I don't send any of them to him. So, they will be up. It will be great. What were the key points of Alejandro's lecture? Alejandro's lecture basically said, terrorism is super difficult to define. It is super difficult to police. Because of this, it is super difficult to research. Therefore, the research that has been done has been overly simplistic, overly naive, overly undata-driven and uninteresting, right? And that leads us to Sageman's article that he gave you to read, right? What, is, what has happened since then is that the research has got more interesting, it has got more nuanced, it has got more engaging, it's got more deep in the depth in the questions that it's asking in terms of looking at this idea of terrorism with a nuanced, more humanistic, um, smarter hat, right? And if you're interested in that, let me just recommend having to have a copy here, The Psychology of Terrorism by Neil Shortwood. I actually have a bunch of them there. So if you actually want one, hit me up, I'll give you one for free. There will be a quiz. Right, so, no, there you go. So, no, that's kind of what he was saying is basically it has been Simplistic and naive and lacking the depth and rigour required to truly understand the problematic question of what makes someone be a terrorist. So, 
The case of Brandon Dassey and Steve Avery. I'd like to hear your opinion on how their cases were handled. Well, so from what I know, and I, I don't know the most about the case, but um, uh, from what I know, and I know it was featured in Making a Murderer, um, the question at the heart of this case, the Brendan Dassey element, is the interrogation that he was subject to, given his intellectual disabilities. So the question being he was oppressively interrogated with very little support, no lawyer, all of this kind of stuff. And under the auspices of this situation, he gave a confession. Right. So we have two issues. One, was it a false confession and actually it didn't happen? Or two, was it just a, coercion, a, a confession induced under coercion, which is still unethical and would affect the admissibility of the confession in court. Now, I mean, I think if you look at the confession, it's just evidently clear. I mean, the way it was handled, it doesn't adhere to any of the principles that I would have taught you in this class, which would have been empathy, adaptation, autonomy, you know, a rapport-based interview, and those are the best interviews to do with anyone, especially those with, with intellectual learning disabilities. You know, the more you press on them, the less they kind of, the more prone they are to saying whatever you want to stop, they don't really think things through, you know, one of the issues they can have is they don't think things through or they don't future plan the same way, so it's a huge risk. But I think what it speaks to is, well, with, with what's going on with that case, is the real issue is how long it takes to undo an error in the criminal justice process. And I think we see this in a lot of the cases, right? We see this in, in this case here with Brendan Dassey. We see this in the case of Paula Guilfoyle. We see this in the case of Colin Stack. We see this in the CIA enhanced interrogation, right? We see this at Guantanamo Bay. I, would, I think I would have told you, you know, there's a law firm in Boston that I worked with and the, the largest pro bono case they ever did was getting three men out of Guantanamo Bay who never should have been there. And I think that it, it really speaks to how hard it is to undo an error in the criminal justice process. And you'll obviously know that for any of the wrongful conviction stuff you may have looked at, any of the, you know, you see it all the time, people after 18 years are exonerated by DNA evidence. It takes a really long time to undo errors. And so almost related to our first answer, that just puts the pressure more on us to make sure that we aren't, uh, aren't causing any errors or as, as error, as error, protective as we can be, because it does take so long to undo them in cases potentially like this, where an error was made, right? When an act of terrorism is committed, how important is the date of the act, if at all? How much does the time of the act alter the context repercussions? Really interesting question. So, when it comes to terrorist acts, there's two ways you can think about the date. The first is, is the date indicative? So, certain acts are, certain ideologies gravitate to certain dates associated with certain events. The right moves, obviously, towards, you know, dates surrounding Waco, Texas, and, and things like that. And the, the jihadists move more towards, you know, 9-11 as a day, and incels move towards the day of the Elliot Rogers attack. I think it was April. You know, so dates mean things. And so, is the date indicative of the ideology? And I remember when the Boston bombing happened. Before they knew who it was, people were speculating about the date as potentially being indicative of the right or the left or whatever it may be. So dates can be indicative. The second idea of dates is dates can be warnings, if you will. So if you know dates are indicative, those dates then become the, the, the threat level goes up on the dates because you know that they are dates that may be targeted. So I actually think dates are really, really, really important as a concept for thinking about what someone may do and when. We don't think about this enough, but space and time are two really important concepts in the psychology of, of preventing terrorism. 
The second point about the repercussions is also true in that there was a study, an honor student of mine did it, and there was a, a published study before that that's very, very good, that showed that the, the space between a previous terrorist attack and when you do a terrorist when, when a terrorist attack occurs, drastically impacts the sentencing for the two. And so a terrorist attack following a terrorist attack, the sentencing naturally goes up. Um, and so I think there's a lot in that, in the mind of the jury, the mind of the, mind of the criminal justice process, the mind of the society. Um, so yeah, the repercussions can be much greater if it is potentially in a, in a wave or in a moment where people are at a heightened state of alert. So really good question, but yes, the dates are hugely important when we think about when people do things. You know, if you think about someone taking life-changing actions here, that they, there are those cases where they think about, well, if I'm gonna do something, when should I do it? Terrorists are theatrical, right? They're about theater, influence, and date, the date, big, big part of that. So really good question. What effect, if any, is there of TV murder shows on criminals? Now, this is one I love to answer. So, it's difficult. Uh, I think most people think about the, the effect that TV shows have on us as, you know, being the criminal hunters. The criminals one, I think, is really interesting. I think I'll broaden it slightly to the society as a whole. Society has a fatuation with criminals. It has a fatua infatuation, sorry, with criminals. An infatuation with those who have done extreme things, even extremely nasty things. And we we lionise them and we write books about them and we put them on the cover of Rolling Stones and we, 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 we kind of create this concept of who they are. Normally I think I have a place of interest and, and, and fear, but we do put them on pedestal. Now, psychologically speaking, there is a theory called Quest for Significance, which is arguing that you know, a lot of these people do these kind of things because of a sense of significance that they get from them. Well. By, by treating them the way that we do and the movies that we make and the TV shows, we are only making people think that this is a quicker route to notoriety and to, um, and to significance. And so, I mean, they, you know, there are arguments in the media now if we should, have, if we should name them. Some countries don't name criminals and some like don't name mass shooters to try and get at this. But it's definitely a part of the, the TV question is the way it makes people... what. T what, what TV makes people think they will get from being a criminal? It's kind of how I would answer that. Tra Travis Scott, MK Ultra. Yes, interesting. So the theory here is that I, I believe the theory. I'm not quite too, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere in on, the, uh, on, on the, these kind of theories. The, the idea being that Travis Scott's Astro World uh, event was actually a satanic ritual to create an offering so that he could enter the Illuminati, I believe probably alongside Jay-Z, who everyone thinks has been Illuminati for a long time. So that, that's one theory. Um, and I think his last video had some MK Ultra flashes. So I think that's kind of where that comes from. Um, I personally don't believe it. I generally would, you know, never, never put down to malevolence what you can put down to stupidity. Uh, and so I think I would group this one in stupidity, poor planning, hubris, ego, um, and, and all of the things that come with uh, well, celebrities. Um, but I think the really interesting question is the MK Ultra question. I think it really gets to this idea of the if you go if you look back historically, governments have funded some very very peculiar studies from using stoned pigeons to fly spaceships to MK Ultra, which we know created. I believe it was Ted Kaczynski came through the MK Ultra program, right? So governments are always pushing the boundaries of what 
I mean, ethically can be done, but, but, but the boundaries of science to, you know, to avoid surprise. And so I think it's a really interesting question here of making sure that, you know, take some time to Google, like, some of the weird studies that have been done. When I mentioned earlier, I was at DSDL. There was a big rumor that, that DSDL once infected an entire train of people with a chemical agent to see what happened. So, you know, there's this really interesting world of government science. And if you want to listen to anything, there's a book by Annie Jacobson called DARPA, The Pentagon's Brain. Um, or if you want the shorter version, and again, I mean, you know, listen to what you want, think what you think. Um, if you Google Annie Jacobson, Joe Rogan, uh, DARPA, I think you get like a 15 minute clip where she talks about some of the research the government is currently doing, infusing computer chips in, 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 in animals' brains and trying to grow back limbs and all this kind of stuff. So really just, there's a really interesting thing to be said for learning about the, the boundaries of what a government will fund in the name of science. So there's my answer to that. Um, could you briefly explain the weapons effect again? I absolutely could. So the weapons effect is this idea that I am subconsciously primed by the presence of a weapon uh, to um, and, and, and the, the, the subconscious exposure to it activates in me concepts of violence, death and harm. And because those concepts are juiced up, they've got neural priming there, they've had some, a pre-bolt of energy. When I'm in a situation where I could react in a, in a, in a range of certain ways, the aggressive route may win because I've pre-charged and pre-juiced all of the concepts associated with violence. So the idea being that by being exposed to violent cues, consciously or subconsciously, it's constantly priming our mind with violent primes and violent ideas, which make us more likely to act violently if the moment ever presents itself. Now, the debate with the weapons effect is... Is it enough to really explain violence? And that's where you get the two camps. One camp says it is, the finger, the trigger pulls the finger, and the other camp says, do a real test, put a gun in front of someone and see if they shoot. And that's kind of an interesting psychological question. But the weapons effect is basically exposure to weapon concepts, weapons themselves, primes violence in you, which makes you more likely to be violent, right? Very, very good, very, very good. Are serial killers born or made? The, the real answer is both. And the simplest study to explain this is, my favourite study of all time, looking at the psychopathy of um, Broadmoor psychopaths, criminals, and Wall Street bankers. And the Wall Street bankers are far more psychopath, far more psychopathic. They just somehow made it to Wall Street, and they do all of their evil over there. So I think that you people are born with predispositions, and they are moulded and shaped by the environment that they go through. And that's why a bunch of people with the same neurological or genetic predisposition can end up in a bunch of different ways, because we all go through a different test tube of life, which is what you know shapes us and where we end up. So it's definitely both. I think we'd, we'd be at the point now where we would, we would definitely say both. Again, it could be 1090 in some, 50-50 in others, 90-10 in others, the, the variance is there, but there's definitely going to be elements of both. Um, and what's interesting is when you say born with, looking back at some of the lectures we looked at, the James Cantor lecture, you're not sometimes genetically born with things, but your exposure and uh, your, your events in the womb change you and change your brain. So you're born with them as in you come out of the womb with them, but they were still incurred upon you by the environment. So really interesting concept of what even being born with now means, which I think is really interesting. So, how old are you? 33. Uh, I'm at the age where sometimes I wake up and my back hurts. So I guess 
Am I old? Oh, I would have preferred if the question said, how young are you? But never mind. I will go with how old I am. I mean, I clearly look old right now. The uh, 8 a.m. class is clearly dragging on the old face. But no, 33. Um, don't know what you're expecting. There's the answer. I answer everything. Uh, okay, last question. No, two questions. Is the final going to be another take-home essay? It is going to be a take-home case study, case home, take-home case report. So you will be given, uh, you will be able to pick a case of your choosing and use forensic psychology to explain it. Uh, I will give you all the prep, all the information, all the support you need. You will get it all after Thanksgiving. It will be done at home. However, if you would like, I would also be more than happy to write a three-hour intensive exam that may be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Pros, real sense of achievement, Cons, horrible three hours. I quite like the idea. But no, probably be the take home. It will make you all happy. You deserve it. You've been more than, more than fantastic. So that's what I'll say. Last question, which is also the longest. So I imagine this one took a while to write. Since, it's a great question. Since the government has evidently been using ineffective and degrading methods of psychological practices as recently as 2010, 2011, with the approved enhanced interrogation techniques, how up-to-date are modern methods in the highest branches of official forensic psychological investigation? Can we trust that our officials are doing what's best? Or are they using methods that they still only think works best? Now, you've got to hope that they're all doing what they think works best. The problem is that sometimes science discovers that something else works best. Now, in that situation, you find yourself in a moment where you are challenging the status quo, right? The idea that often something is adopted writ large because we think it works, and then someone comes out and says, actually, something else works better. Now, the challenge is getting that message out there and getting that new practice in there. So if you think about the America, right, and something like interviewing, you know, how many agencies interview? Border, FBI, police, CIA, military, humanitarian, Red Cross, Everyone interviews, right? So what, what agency do you even start with, right? And then you go down with some of the agencies to the federal level, sorry, to the state level, and then the town level. And they may all be doing different things at the state level with how they run their state police training and their state police doctrine. And we know there are huge differences in how police offices or police polices run cross-culturally. So what it often becomes a case of is getting it out to as many people as possible at the bottom level, making it, building a test case, showing that it worked and hoping that by word of mouth, you can slowly work your way up and increase the recent reach and increase the impact. So a really good example is the read technique of interrogation, which is not particularly popular. Um, and there are some, some questions about its efficiency. California, um, I know there are certain states trying to remove it entirely. Um, so in certain states, it's still there. You know, so there's almost a slow process. Now, I, my, my, the optimist in me says that no one's ever doing anything they know doesn't work. They're doing what they think does work, but often they may not know that science, quote unquote science, um, has found that something else works better. And in that case, it's just a case of communication, getting the message out there, getting buy-in, and trying to put something in reality. And it's slow, tedious, hard work. But when done effectively, you get to that point where everyone is doing, as you said, what is actually best and not what they think works best. So difficult question, difficult answer. But that is it. So everyone, thank you all so much for giving me the clay and the material to build this lecture. Thank you for the questions. I never thought I would talk about Travis Scott and MK Ultra, and then follow up with a question on serial killers and then talk about the ethics of forensic psychology. 
all in the space of 15 minutes, but I have really enjoyed it. I hope you found the career stuff useful. I hope you found the content stuff useful. I hope you found the ethical stuff useful. I hope you just enjoyed the materials, and I'm sorry I can't be with you today in class. But I am very, very, very excited for Tuesday. We have an amazing lecture planned for you. We have the Rittenhouse the, uh, the Rittenhouse decision should be coming out anytime now. And then, and then on Tuesday, uh, we have judge and jury decision making and really interesting uh, time to be learning about that. So couldn't have picked a better day to have that discussion on how judges and juries make decisions, the psychology of it and what that means going forward. So with that, have an amazing evening. Have an amazing weekend. Thank you for everything. I thoroughly enjoy being in the classroom with you. Cannot wait to be back on Tuesday. Have a great night.